sermon text for this morning is Romans 6, 5 to 10. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is mastered over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So Father, as we enter into your word now, we ask that we would experience to the fullest possible measure our union with Jesus Christ. It is a precious thing beyond all words that by your own doing we are in Christ Jesus who has been made for us wisdom and justification and sanctification and redemption. O Christ, exalt yourself now in these moments in your word, I pray. Be our teacher. Holy Spirit, draw near and rest heavily upon this congregation, I pray. And give us understanding and transformed minds. Through Christ, I pray. Amen. I want to begin with a general statement now about the believer's union with Christ. It goes like this. Because of our union with Christ, we have died with Him and we will most certainly be raised with Him. Now, as soon as you hear that, you should raise a question. And say, but don't you really mean to say, Pastor John, since we have been united with Christ, therefore we have died with him and have risen with him? Do you really mean to say, because we have died with him, we shall be raised with him? Isn't it true that in our union with him, What happened to us happened to him. And so when he died, we died. And when he rose, we rose. Don't you mean, according to verse 4, to agree that we walk in newness of life? Don't you mean to say that we're alive to God? Verse 11. Don't you mean to say, verse 13, we're alive from the dead? Aren't you forgetting, Pastor John, that Ephesians 2, 5 says that we were dead in trespasses and sins and you have made us alive together with him and has raised us up with him, past tense? Aren't you forgetting that when you say 
We shall be raised with Him because we're united with Him. And aren't you forgetting Colossians chapter 3 verse 1? If you have been raised up with Christ, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above. All those texts. So why do, why do you make the general statement like this? Since we are united with Christ, we have died with Him, and we most certainly shall be raised with Him. Why do you say it like that? Why don't you say it past tense? Since we are united with Him, we have died and we have been raised. And my response to that is to say, yes, 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 I honor and I want to honor those texts. We do walk in newness of life because we're united with Christ. We are alive to God, verse 11. We are alive from the dead, verse 13. We have been raised with him, Ephesians 2, 6. I want to say all that. I do say all that. But I want to honor Today, from this text, what the text says. And what it says in verse 5 is, If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And I want to honor what it says in verse 8, which is a repetition. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And I want to honor chapter 8, verse 11, where it says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells now in us, he who raised Christ from the dead past will give life to our mortal bodies also through the spirit who dwells in us. And I want to honor 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. He who raised the Lord Jesus will one day raise us also with him. So yes, yes, yes to the truth that there is newness of life in Christ. Yes, there is truth in Ephesians 2, 5, and 6 that we have been raised. Yes, we should say with Colossians 3, 1, if we have been raised, let us set our minds on things that are above. But it is also true that we are not yet raised. And it is important that we say it the way verse 5 says it and the way verse 8 says it for this reason. There was a foot in Paul's day, a heresy, to the effect that the resurrection of believers had already happened. And Paul wanted to make sure that though it's true that in a sense it's already happened, there is a sense in which it hasn't already happened. Let me read you this heresy. It comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And Paul warns in 2 Timothy 2.17 that their talk, these folks that he calls gangrene spreaders, their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus, he names them, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they are upsetting the faith 
of some heresy is generally a half-truth, not a whole falsehood. The resurrection is over. That's what Hymenaeus and Philetus were saying. They were probably basically what are called docetists who thought that the body wasn't worth raising from the dead and were glad to get rid of it in death anyway. And all that matters is spiritual resurrection. And they were like Plato and other philosophers who said, just let the body go. It's what the, it's the soul that really matters. And so they latched on to Paul's teaching that we're already raised with Christ and they went teaching it everywhere. And Paul says they're heretics. They're gangrene in the church. Isn't that amazing? That you can be gangrene preaching the truth when you don't preach the whole truth? So, it's very important, I think, that while we say yes to Ephesians 2.6, Colossians 3.1, verse 4, verse 11, verse 13, that we also say yes to verse 5 and yes to verse 8. Let's read them again, because this is the main point. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, this is verse 5, certainly then, because of that union with Christ in his death, we shall be United with him in the likeness of his resurrection. And verse 8, if we have died with Christ, we shall, we believe that we shall also live with him. So, union with Christ not only has enabled us to experience measures of new life in Christ now, but it also secures for us the full measure of resurrection life in Christ when this mortal body puts on immortality at the last day. And our salvation is not complete until that happens. And no Christian theology is Christian theology unless it affirms the resurrection of the body from the dead as the completion of our salvation secured by Jesus Christ when he was raised from the dead. Now, let's think about this for a moment. What's the meaning here of the logic of verses 5 and 8? You'll notice that what Paul is stressing in those two verses, which repeat each other, verse 5 and verse 8, what he's stressing here is the effect that our union with Christ in his death has on our future. That's what he's stressing. What's the effect that our union with Christ in death has on our future? And you'll notice the if-then in both verses. There's an if-then construction. If you are united to him in his death, then certainly you will be in his resurrection. Verse 8, if we have died with Christ, then we believe we shall be united to him or will live with him. So the crucial point for Paul is that in our dying 
with Christ, there is a guarantee that we're going to have eternal life in the resurrection. And believing this is utterly crucial. Because, and I stressed this last week, I'll keep on stressing it, believing this, believing that God is resurrection for us in Jesus, is essential for how the death of Christ and our union with Him in that death becomes effective in triumphing over sin now because of its effect on our future. I wish I could draw this for you. I wish I had a board out here in the air and I would draw the death of Christ and then I would have an arrow back and we would be united with Him in His death. Then I would draw an arrow over the present way off into the future from the death of Christ to the resurrection and say there's a, a bow of guarantee and then I'd draw an arrow back from that glorious hope into the present and say there's the power. The death of Christ has power in the present to liberate us from sin by securing for us a hope that we will be raised from the dead and thus freeing us from fear to be the most radical kinds of sin-denying, life-laying-down people imaginable. Now, let's see this in two ways that Paul argues for it. Verses 8 to 10 is one, verses 5 to 7 is another. Let's take verses 8 to 10 first. Notice the stress in verse 8 on believing. Sometimes I've heard it said that there's no faith in chapter 6. It's all just what God is doing and, and faith comes later and earlier. But here's one exception to that. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe, we're confident. This is our hope. This is where we rest. This is where we, we rest our satisfaction. We believe that we shall live with Him. We're believing, we're hoping, we're reposing, we're resting in the promise of resurrection, eternal life. So important that you see that word, believe here, because I believe that's your part. Your part in God's work for how the death with Christ and resurrection someday become effective in the present for delivering from the power of sin. Now, Paul buttresses this faith in our resurrection with five steps of an argument in verses 9 and 10. I'll just mention them and you'll see them plain as day. Step number one. Christ died to sin once for all. Verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. So the first step in the argument is Christ really died. He really died to take care of sin. He took care of it so fully that he didn't have to stay dead Anymore, It was once for all that he died. He didn't have to have many dyings, like there had to be many bulls killed. Or perhaps in some wings of the faith, there is a distorted notion that the offering has to be offered over and over again in the Lord's Supper. Once for all, there is a death. Step two in the argument. He rose from the dead. Verse 9 at the beginning. Knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead. 
So he died once for all for sin, and it was so complete, nothing could keep him dead. There was no reason for him to stay dead, and so he rose. Step three in the argument. Second half of verse 10. He lives now to God. It says, the life that he lives, he lives to God. He died to satisfy the demands of sin. He lives to satisfy the demands of God. His life is utterly oriented on God, unto God, for the glory of God. And therefore, it will never cease. Step four in the argument. He is triumphant. Therefore, over death. It says in verse 9, second half of the verse, death no longer is master over him. Death is a defeated foe. It's not a master. He's the master over death. He has the keys of death and Hades in his hand. He decides who dies and who lives. He sends to hell. He rescues from hell. He is the triumphant one. Death is no longer the authority And finally, step five, therefore his life is indestructible. Verse nine again, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. He can never die again. This is not like Lazarus' resurrection. Lazarus died again. This is not like little Talitha who was raised from the dead. She died again. This is resurrection unto an indestructible life. Never to die again. Let that land on you this Lord's day. Our Lord Jesus Christ is alive. That's why we worship on Sunday. You know that, don't you? This is the Lord's day for one reason. He's alive. He rose on Sunday. We worship a living Christ. He will never die. Everybody else will die. Unless he comes back and by that indestructible life transforms you in the twinkling of an eye and you are changed in an instant. And the mortal puts on immortality with no intervening shedding of the body, which would be glorious, wouldn't it? Paul wanted that to happen so bad. He said, I don't want to be naked. Meaning, I don't want to lay this body down and be a naked spirit. The ideal for Paul was not a spirit rescued from the body. The ideal for Paul was a glorified body. And he would have loved to it for it to happen without death intervening, to strip the soul from the body where it belongs in the Christian thinking. And therefore, if we die, there'll be a stripping. There'll be a nakedness of the soul. But oh, there's coming a day when that indestructible Christ, who is body in heaven today, with a new body, you can touch him. They said, touch me, feel my side, feel my hands, give me a piece of fish, I'll eat it. He will bring those bodies and put on immortality and we will be raised and verse 8 says believe this you see that we believe this and I think the stress there is on this believing because it's in the believing of this future effect 
of the past union with Christ in his death. You see the logic? If we have died with him, then we believe we shall live with him. And believing that, that power comes back now. Faith is the victory that overcomes sin and the world. It's faith that unites us with that unbreakable hope that we have in the future. And so the past conspires to secure the future and the future breaks in upon the present by faith and we share in that risen life and yes, 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 we walk in newness of life and in that sense we have already been raised with Him. It is that secure and we have that power available to us. I think that's why Paul stresses in both 5 and 8, verse 5 and 8, the effect that dying with him has on our future, not just on our, our present. Now that's one way. That's the, the second paragraph. Let's go to the first paragraph and see the second way that Paul develops how dying with Christ relates to our, our future resurrection. Now this argument in verses 5 to 7 is very different. Very different. In the argument that we just looked at, he stressed the connection between our death with him and our glorification, you could say. Our resurrection. Here, he's going to stress the connection between our death, our resurrection, and our Sanctification. What's the function of becoming holy, triumphing over sin, and our resurrection to come? Verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be United with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Now that is given, you'll notice, as the basis for verse 4, which stresses that we walk in newness of life. And so it's crucial for Paul that we believe that we're going to be united with him in a resurrection like his so that we can walk in newness of life. That's the logic between verses 4 and 5. We are raised up with Him to walk in newness of life. For to die with Him means to be secured in a resurrection like His. So that resurrection hope is crucial for the walking in newness of life. But now, Paul argues for this link between our past death with Christ and our future resurrection with Him very differently than he did in verses 8 to 10. Here he says, you are going to be united in a resurrection like Christ's, that's verse 6, or verse uh, 5, knowing this, knowing this, for you know this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Now, how's he arguing here? 
You're going to be united in a resurrection like His. For you know this, don't you? That when you died with Him, your old self died so that the body of sin would be nullified and you'd no longer be a slave of sin. Hmm. It sounds like the argument goes something like this. Your death with Christ secures a victory over slavery to sin so that the body no longer is the helpless accomplice of sin. But rather, there's a liberty brought into the Christian life that enables the body to be handed over as an instrument of righteousness and not just handed over like a lackey into service of sin. And so in that sense, the body of sin, the body that is a, a, a helpless accomplice of sin is nullified. And the body is freed now to be an accomplice in righteousness and not just an accomplice in sin. And the body is no longer a slave to the soul that's a slave to sin because the soul is given freedom not to sin and the body can join with the soul then in doing righteousness in the world. And he gives that an argument for how you know you're going to be raised with Christ. Because the power of sin is broken, we know that we'll be raised with him. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that our sanctification, our triumphing over sin little by little, earns for us the resurrection? I don't think so. But it does, I think, very clearly imply there won't be any resurrection without sanctification. No resurrection unto life without sanctification. I think that is here in verse 6, which raises this question for us. Wait a minute. I thought for two years you've been teaching us that justification... By faith alone, apart from any doings, obedience on our part, secures for us a right standing with God that can't be broken. And you're right. That's exactly what I've taught and believe is in Romans. And I also believe that without sanctification, no one will see the Lord. Without verse 6, the resurrection of verse 5 will not be experienced. So what's the relationship between justification and sanctification? And that's exactly the right question to ask because that's the question Paul answers in verse 7. And all the English versions make it hard to see, to my dismay. In verse 7... He gives the reason for why, why it is that we will be freed from slavery to sin. And the verse says, for 
He who has died is justified from sin. And all the English versions translate it freed from sin. I don't think that's right. I think that just repeats the initial verse. doesn't ground it. I think it needs a ground. In fact, I think it's wholly unwarranted to translate the word that 26 times in Paul's letters only means justify, reckon righteous, to translate it here in terms of a moral transformation. I think that's wrong. The moral transformation is in verse 6, for sure, and is absolutely necessary if we are to attain to the resurrection of the dead. If you have died, you've put off the old body of sin, and you're freed from slavery to sin. Yes, that's essential if we're going to make it to heaven. There must be a change in direction in your life, not perfection. I'll be saying that over and over again in this chapter because it's so plain. Not perfection here, but a change in direction. A new liberty comes into the life, a hatred of sin, a commitment to do right, a growth in grace. This is essential if we are attained unto the resurrection. But now the question is... How does justification relate to the necessity of sanctification for the resurrection? And the answer is given in verse 7. For he who died has been declared innocent, acquitted, and just and righteous over against sin and from sin. Now, what that says, in effect, then, is that the foundation of sanctification is justification. But there's more that can be said about that, giving warrant to it and explanation to it. I think it's simply superficial to say that because verse 6 is talking about a genuine liberation from moral sinning, that the ground clause in verse 7, which uses the standard word for justification, has to also refer to a moral liberation from sinning. I think that is absolutely superficial. And I think the superficiality comes from this. Failing to ponder the nature of slavery to sin to its root. Think about this with me for a moment. This is very relevant, very practical to your life, especially if you struggle with depression. Or know somebody who does. Or other situations that I'll refer to. What is it that holds us in slavery to sin? The answer to that question is not one thing, but two things, at least. One thing is the allurement, the powerful, deceitful allurement of sin as to be preferred over righteousness. So sin presents itself to the mind and the conscience and the will and says, do me and you will be happy. 
lie and it will go better. Lust and it will feel good and there won't be any repercussions. Uh, talk about yourself for a little bit and you'll get a little more praise and it'll feel so good. Sin is always commending itself to us with allurements and we are enslaved to it because those allurements triumph in our will and in our hearts and we don't have the wherewithal to see another alternative as more alluring than the allurement of sin. Now, if that's all that verse 6 were referring to, I would agree that verse 7 should mean, for we have been freed from sin. Because that's the only way you could get free from sin. It was this, with a moral transformation of the will, to be allured by other things more. That's not the usual meaning of justification. And highly unlikely that that is what it means. And so I ask, is there another way that sin holds us in bondage? I mean, practical sin now. Practical, daily, keeping us from doing the right and leaning us to do what is wrong. Is there another power that holds us back from sinning? And I believe there is, and I believe it is deeper than the power of sin to allure by its satisfaction promises. It's deeper. And therefore, it has to be fixed or solved first before any progress can be made with triumph over the allurement of sin. And what I have in mind is the guilt of sin that paralyzes and blinds to the fact that there can be any hope for me, a sinner, that I could even begin to be accepted by God and make any progress in triumphing over the power of sin in my life. I think the blinding Despair of the guilt of sin is a deeper bondage to sin. Let me just illustrate for you. There are people who have grown up in the church, they know all the doctrine. And owing to the exceeding sinfulness of sin, give way to it. Entirely. And if you approach those people and watch this horrible work of sin ruining their lives and ask them, don't you see that the allurement of sin that is pulling you down is a lie? Don't you see that this behavior and this attitude and this spiritual orientation is absolute folly? It's going to destroy you. It's a dead-end street. Don't you see that? And have them say back to you, yes. And it doesn't matter. 
because there's no hope for me. That's a deeper bondage. That's not a bondage to the allurement of sin only. That's a bondage underneath the allurement of sin. Hopelessness. I could never get there. I could never get right with God. I am excluded. I could never be accepted. I could never be set right. I couldn't even get to first base so that there would be any resources to fight against the allurements. That bondage is way deeper. This is despair. This is absolute blank. I know what you're saying, preacher. I know what you're saying. You don't need to persuade me that sin is suicidal. I know it. And there's no hope for me. That's what verse 7 is about. That's what verse 7 is about. Justification, even after chapter 5, is the key not only to getting right with God, it's the key to sanctification. And if those two get mingled, there is no hope for anybody. This is a massive mistake that many are making today. The coalescing of sanctification into justification is a great tragedy in the Catholic Church and in other parts of the church today. Beneath the call to sanctification, which is an essential call. I believe that so deeply it makes this issue huge for me. There is a holiness without which nobody will see the Lord lived out holiness, not just justification. But it is not the same as justification. The ground of it, the ground clause of verse 7 supports the necessity of verse 6. And therefore what I have is news for the hopeless that you don't have to get to a point of triumph over the allurement of sin before you get right with God. There is a reality, a distinct reality, a unique reality called justification. A declaration, a legal right that you, by falling on Jesus alone, called faith, gets you the righteousness of Jesus. From which position now? you will little by little be granted the grace to grow in triumph over sin, which is what verse 6 is calling us all to and what this chapter is really all about. So let me sum it up. In overcoming the power of sin... Which is what this chapter wants. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, dead men don't sin. That's verses 1 and 2. 
Why don't they? Because if you have died, you've put off the old man and, and the body of sin, and you've been liberated from bondage and slavery to sin for those who have died have been justified from sin. Justification is at the bottom. Sanctification is on top of it. And glorification is on top of that. And they come in that order. And they come with enabling both ways. Nobody is sanctified who's not justified. Nobody will be glorified who's not sanctified. No, to get this right, to get the gospel right, is so crucial both to win the hopeless to Jesus, to have a message for the most destitute, hopeless, depressed person, and to have a church that's not filled with carnal believers who think they're going to heaven and they live like the devil. There is a whole gospel, and it's all here in chapter 6. It's almost in every verse. It seems like. So we summarize like this. In verses 5 to 10, union with Christ in His death secures our eternal resurrection. That's stated in 5, it's stated in 8. By dying with Christ, we're united with Him in a resurrection like His and we are secured. We're going to rise with Him. And He says, why? First argument in 8 to 10, because Christ has an indestructible life. And if you're united with Him, you have an indestructible life. And you're going to come out of the grave someday with a glorious body. And the second argument in verses 5 to 7 is God takes away the blinding despair of getting right with God underneath sanctification. And he makes us right with himself by faith alone. And then on that foundation of verse 7, he builds verse 6. And our old body ceases to become the lackey of sin. And our, our old man dies and our new man comes alive. And little by little we grow in grace and are able to be freed from slavery to sin and make progress against the allurement of sin. Let's bow in prayer. Let's just take one minute in quietness as we close here. I'm sure there are people in this room who are so, so despairing of yourself. Would you please hear, this is good news, that the reason Paul has developed this argument that may seem complex is because your life is complex, as you know. And the bondage of sin has tentacles that are not just simple but complex. At one level, sin just feels good. It just feels good. And at another level, it feels suicidal. And yet you feel hopeless. That there's not even any point in trying to fight against it. And God has a remedy at every level of your life. God has a remedy for the human condition. And if yours is hopeless despair this morning, I plead with you to hear the offer of justification by faith alone, apart from 
sanctification. And let sanctification follow in due time by the power of the Spirit, by the power of that wonderful resurrection hope streaming back into the present because we've been set right with God through dying with Christ. Just throw yourself in mercy on Jesus right now. You can do that. You can do that. Don't let Satan whisper into your heart. He won't accept you. That's a lie. That's not Jesus talking. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. You can't do anything for it. Just come. Just fall. He will never turn anybody away who comes. And for those of you who are struggling at the allurement level, take heart. Reestablish yourself by faith now on this glorious justification foundation. Think about the glory of resurrection. Think of what God is for you in Jesus now and in the age to come. And let the superior satisfaction of God give you victory over whatever you're struggling with today. Why don't you stand with me for a closing prayer? Father, I beg of you that you'd let no one go out of this room despairing that there's no hope for them. Triumph right now with the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness of God breaking in, granting faith, resting on faith, sweeping in through faith will set you right with God. And now unto him who is able to keep you from falling, And to present you before the throne of his glory with rejoicing, without blemish. To the only wise God be glory and authority and majesty and dominion before all time now and forevermore. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.